Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. Welcome, everybody, to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. I'm your host, Sebastian Neary. I'm a student of history and philosophy at Drexel University, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Emmy Brown. I am the Program and Operations Manager at Collegium Institute, former student of history and philosophy as well. And we're here in conversation today with Nate Anderson. Nate is the Deputy Editor at Ars Technica, where he oversees long-form feature content and writes about technology, law, and policy. And Nate has recently written a book called In Emergency Break Glass, which is all about Nietzsche and technology. Nate Anderson, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Alrighty. So to jump right into it, this book is all about technology, uh, how we should approach it in the modern day in a more healthy way. And in order to answer this question, you draw on the work of a famous 19th century German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. So for our listeners, could you answer the question, like, who is Friedrich Nietzsche? And what inspired you to write a book engaging with his thought in such a deep way? Yeah, it's certainly an odd choice for one of these books that helps us think about our technological moment. But that's one of the things that drew me to Nietzsche. It was a, it was a different voice to enter these conversations. Nietzsche was a philosopher in what is now Germany and uh, Switzerland in the mid to late 1800s. And he was sort of a child prodigy. He got a, a university professorship, a named chair when he was very young, before he'd even finished his dissertation. He looked like he was going to have a glorious academic future ahead of him. But within a few years of starting that job, he became profoundly dissatisfied at what his life was becoming, at the culture around him. And he eventually quit it and walked away completely from the academic world, traveled around Europe for over 10 years on very little money, just thinking and writing and seeking a new way to be and to live that he didn't see um, in the culture around him. So he wrote a lot of books that nobody read. And eventually, a condition that had been with him all of his life got worse and worse and worse. And he finally went completely insane when he was 44, lived on another 10 years or so in, in that state. And it was only during that time that his books began to attract attention and people began to read him. So the thing that really attracted me to that work and why I think Nietzsche is somebody to engage with now is because he just spent so much time expressing a certain kind of dissatisfaction with the culture around him and with the life he was living. And as I reread a lot of his work in the last few years, it just seemed especially relevant to the moment 
we find ourselves in today. The forces, of course, were not quite the same. Nietzsche didn't have computers, didn't have electricity, but he was there at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. He saw factories, he used typewriters. You know, he could see where this kind of thing was going, and he experienced some of the stresses and dissatisfactions of life that that I think we feel in even more heightened fashion today. And his response to that was to write these kind of bombastic books that were often over the top, sometimes a bit juvenile, but make for amazing reading and, if nothing else, are provocative, I think, in the best way. And that's why I say in the book, I think that Nietzsche is someone worth thinking with, even if we might not want to take him as our guru or mentor. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. So there's a a fair bit of controversy surrounding Nietzsche due to some association between his ideas and Nazi or proto-Nazi ideology, for instance. Um, So I was wondering if you could address some of this controversy, which you do in the book a little bit as well, um, and explain why you think Nietzsche is still worth engaging today in spite of those considerations. Sure. The Nazis did embrace some of his thought, and that led Americans to reject it. It was really only after the war that a German professor who came over to Princeton and taught for many years here in in America helped show that Nietzsche was someone worth engaging with, was not a Nazi, that his thought had been significantly distorted and really helped rehabilitate him. So I, I get into this more in my book, but I guess I would just say the one thing I would say is that Nietzsche has a reputation maybe as aligned with the Nazis. In reality, I think this is a massive distortion. Nietzsche was no anti-Semite. He had some family members who were, including his brother-in-law, and he was furious with them. He wouldn't speak to them. He rejected them. He writes repeatedly about how he has no interest in the anti-Semitism he sees all around him. So that's just one aspect of of the ways in which he didn't fit at all with the Nazi program. Much of Nietzsche's thought was kind of co-opted after he went insane and then after he died by his sister, who who did fall into the Nazi orbit. Um, In fact, Adolf Hitler attended her funeral when she died later on. And she spent a lot of time distorting what Nietzsche wrote, altering passages to kind of fit her own ideology. She had actually run a racist explicitly German and anti-Jewish colony project in South America. But Nietzsche wasn't like that at all. So I think this this picture that we get of him is distorted by the unfortunate legacy his work, you know, had. But Nietzsche himself is a much more complicated figure than that. Mm. So to go from Nietzsche to the question of technology, most of the book has to do with how much technology has united itself with our day-to-day activity. And you try to explore ways that we might approach technology in a somewhat more healthy way. In particular, when it comes to Nietzsche, you talk a lot about his advocacy of limiting information exposure in order to cultivate a capacity for independent thinking. So how should we approach the search for knowledge in a world so saturated with information accessibility? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a difficult one to answer because before you've given us a lot of thought, I think for most people, myself included, you might think that the easy availability of almost any information on anything these days is, you know, a massive good. What would be wrong with that? Why wouldn't we want that? 
And yet I think we have only to look around at our own lives. I mean, I'm speaking here personally, and the amount of time that we spend consuming information that really does nothing for us, perhaps doesn't even really entertain us. Uh, I'm thinking of just huge amounts of time kind of wasted surfing the internet or watching streaming media or for people who watch 24-hour cable news. You know, and I think if you step back and look at the amount of time being sunk into these things and ask yourself, are they advancing the goals I have for my life? Nietzsche was an early critic of this. He was a professor, but he began to see a life unrolling before him of just endless research in the archives, right? Even at the time, the information available to him was more, even in his one discipline, was more than he could really master in his own lifetime. And that's to say nothing of other disciplines in which he was very interested, like science. And so he really came to believe and to argue that we needed to be much more thoughtful about the information we consume because so much of it um, was a waste of time. It was almost an informational garbage that piles up around our lives. So he he said that we should instead focus on those works that are really proved to us by experience. So if you think of the books, the movies, the films, the music that have really made an impact in your life, you know, maybe it's worth re-engaging with those a third, a fourth time, really marinating in them to the point that those words and images and music kind of become part of us in the way we think, that may be much more useful to us than this sort of endless browsing among the fields of information or watching cable news or just clicking mindlessly through streaming video on Netflix at the end of the day. Um, So Nietzsche really calls us to sort of a goal-directed life in the service of human flourishing. Uh, that's his his big theme that he restates over and over and over, and is what he spent most of his life trying to do. And so he, he has a lot of powerful things to say as a former academic about the ways in which too much information, if not used thoughtfully and with an end in mind, can just be a waste of our time. And I think most people today can feel that in their own lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's telling that Nietzsche was already concerned about information overload, even without the abundance of screens that we have now in the modern world. There was one one line in the first chapter of the book that really struck me. I'm going to read a brief excerpt for the audience on this topic, where you say, my life had become screens. Without them, I could no longer read a paper, write a letter, play a game, talk to friends, work a job, check the weather, make a to-do list, read a novel, listen to music, watch a movie, or take a photograph. The world's tactile richness was reduced to polished pieces of glass. That last sentence really struck me when I first read it, and I wanted to talk about that tactile richness. So one of the major themes throughout the book is that a life well-lived involves a life lived close to the body and the instincts. You quote Nietzsche's uh, Zarathustra, there's more wisdom in your body than in your deepest philosophy. So what does this mean, and how can we apply that wisdom to our lives? Now, I know that both of you have backgrounds in philosophy, as do I. And so, and and Nietzsche, of course, was a genius academic at a very young age. I don't think he ever rejected um, the wisdom of the mind, of thought, of the intellect. But what he did reject was the attempt to say that that's really 
the most important thing. That as long as we're sort of thinking at a high level, we're being fully alive and fully human. And he came to realize how untrue that was. He he writes pretty um, disparagingly about people whose books he read, where he could tell that they had composed them simply sitting, you know, cramped and bent over in a library, surrounded by books, not in touch with life, with the world, or with their own bodies and emotions and feelings. So when he left the university behind, he really tried to find a new way of living, and he began walking widely. I mean, he he would take walks four, five, six hours a day when he was healthy enough to do it. And he would take little note cards around with him and a pencil, and he would write down thoughts as they occurred to him on these walks. And he began to see a real connection between physical movement, the emotions, the instincts, thinking, and how all these things were interrelated. And we couldn't just separate out the mind and rationality without damage. And so he makes lots of comments about how we have a great reason, which is our body, our instincts. Uh, You think the, the wisdom of our DNA that can help keep us alive, that can tell us what our bodies need. These are sorts of things we need to tune into. And too much focus on pure rationality, on the mind, on a world solely of ideas and books and things can alienate us from that kind of existence. So I began to feel, as I I think a lot of other people in our culture are feeling today, that sort of alienation when I looked around at my own life and thought, you know, even when I'm doing a wide variety of things, that list you would just mention from the passage in the book, they're all being done essentially on, on different forms of glass screen, sometimes with a keyboard. But, you know, that has very little to do with the fabulous tactile diversity of life. It often puts you in a, as the user, in a physical position where you're sitting or lying down. And so Nietzsche seemed a good person to think with on this issue because he had experienced a kind of waking up from that sort of life and began to call other people to it and to really value these things that are not the mind as being important. Uh, they were really denigrated at the time as being as being lesser. Instead, have really been validated today by plenty of academic research that shows how connected we are to the body and how important a healthy mind and a healthy body are to work with each other. And you can't just separate one out. To circle back real quick, when you were speaking about how we should better approach information, you were talking about how when we consume media, it might be more productive to sit with the things that we consume for a greater period of time, maybe listen to things over, read things over, and things like this. At one point in the first chapter, you criticize the mindfulness movement, which is all about you know being present with your activities, because you say that mindfulness in itself does not necessarily have a goal in mind. And as a consequence, it can end up basically serving as merely a way to reconcile you to a lifestyle that is flawed or broken rather than urging you to change it. So how does your approach in this book differ from the mindfulness project that you criticize? So I guess I just want to say that I'm a big supporter of mindfulness. I think Nietzsche would have been too. 
the focus on your own experience and what's actually happening to you should, I think, in his view, lead you to follow your instincts and engage the body to move through the world, to have different kinds of experiences. That's what our bodies and minds desire. And if we really are mindful, I think that's what we'll be led to. My criticism in the book comes from sort of a cheaper form of mindfulness that I've encountered culturally in places like yoga classes and elsewhere, where it feels like mindfulness is simply a way to just not worry about things for an hour. All of this is simply to go back to your life with more energy to keep doing exactly what you were doing before. And Nietzsche's whole thing in all of his works is calling people to live a really goal-oriented life that has an end in view. And that end is a kind of human flourishing. That I talk about in the book, Nietzsche has a fairly particular way he thinks about this. But that's the sort of mindfulness, the kind of mindfulness that creates space by not always worrying about the future or not always worrying about things you might have done wrong in the past. That can actually free you up to think about goals you have and making plans and directions for the future. But there's a kind of mindfulness without any kind of teleology or goal-orientedness behind it that simply says, just stay in the moment basically as a form of stress reduction so that you can kind of get back to everything you've been doing. And I think that can actually keep us from really rethinking our lives and the goals we might have for them. So that's what I'm getting at in the book. That's a helpful distinction. Thank you for that. So to pivot a little bit, in the final chapter of the book, you discuss Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. What does he mean by that? And how can that concept help us today? The eternal return is definitely one of Nietzsche's stranger ideas. And people to this day argue over whether he really believed it or it was more of a thought exercise. The idea is simply that the universe is endlessly progressing and revolving and things are developing and evolving. And given an infinite amount of time, in some way, the same exact configuration of atoms and energies will recur over and over again in a sort of universal cycle. So the practical upshot of this idea, which Nietzsche seemed to think might have been borne out by the emerging evolutionary science of his day, but at other times he seems to treat more as just a way of thinking about life, is that it poses a really stark question to us. And the question is, am I willing to have this moment that I'm engaged in recur over and over and over throughout history? It's a way of looking at your life and basically saying, am I living my life in such a way I would do this all again? And I would choose to do this all again. Now, this raises all sorts of complicated issues. I think in a lot of ways, it's not particularly helpful. Uh, you can think of the enormous pressure it puts on you in every single moment to think, am I absolutely maximizing my life right now? And that can lead to a certain, you know, very unattractive sort of you only live once kind of seize life, carpe diem kind of philosophy that that has plenty of downsides, might not give you a break. It might not include rest and relaxation, for instance. But I think Nietzsche uses it at his best to really push this goal-directed question he's been raising for people. So if you find that your life feels rather aimless or that 
you spend too much time on social media or texting or 24-hour cable news or any of these forms of information that soak up so much of our time, this gives you just a little handy way to kind of step back and think about the sort of thing I would want to recur if I could live my life over again. And I think in that sense, it poses a real challenge to us. So I think it's really up to people whether that feels useful or oppressive or liberating. But if it does feel helpful, at least once in a while to step back and look at your life, maybe in the bigger picture and say, would I want this way I'm living to recur? Could I say yes to the way I'm living if it happened again? And if not, to think about ways in which we might explore changes. So the best version of the eternal return, I think, is as a spur to personal transformation. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so applying that a little bit, you talk about some of the ways that Nietzsche exhorts his readers to live when you talk about his idea of living dangerously, right? He has the quote, you know, about how we should build our lives on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. So what are some ways that you think the world around us might be excessively concerned with safety? And also, how do you think that we could buck the trend, so to speak, and try to really apply this idea to our own lives? As with most of the ideas in this book, I guess I just want to come out and, and say first, there's a way in which this can really go wrong in, in talking about this. In a world filled with, with wars, like the war we see in Ukraine, with COVID, it's pretty easy to say being overly concerned with safety is not a bad thing. Like, we want safety. And that's absolutely true. I'm not calling for some sort of reckless abandon. But I think Nietzsche began to see that his own life was too safe in a sort of different way. And this goes back to the eternal return idea that, that if he were to do this all again, he would look at this career, this academic career that was developing, and he would just say, this feels too easy. I mean, I have a fairly safe position. I'm, I'm down here in Switzerland at the University of Basel teaching a few students at a time. I spend most of my time in the library. It's very, very safe in that sense. But it may be that that very safety comes at the expense of living a life more connected to the world, to different kinds of experiences, an openness toward risk in a managed, limited sense. But there has to be some openness to that if we're going to have new experiences. The ultimate non-risk taker is the agoraphobic who won't leave their home, uh, right? The outside world feels dangerous and strange, and it's easier to stay inside where things are safe and easy and comfortable. Nietzsche diagnosed this as a particular ill of industrializing society. And if we think about what technology offers us, it's usually some kind of promise that it will make our life easier or safer or more entertaining. I don't want to downplay those things, especially for people in the world who have not had enough of them, right? There are plenty of people for whom maybe that is a great good. Um, especially if you've lived in an unstable or dangerous situation. But I think there's a contrast to that. And there can also be, um, those can be extremely limiting for people who have endorsed those values so much that as they look around at their own lives and they find, as I did, that I was spending huge amounts of my time 
in these glass surfaces of screens, tablets, computer monitors, often living indoors where things are air conditioned, relatively safe. This was not ultimately the most satisfying way to live. And I began looking for something more just as Nietzsche began looking for something more. So Nietzsche, again, is calling us to a certain kind of willingness to take risks, but in the service of this goal-oriented human flourishing. And I guess I would just say, if you feel like you're flourishing just fine with your current level of ease, safety, and comfort, you know, Nietzsche's voice is probably not one you need to spend a lot of time listening to. But if you're feeling some kind of dissatisfaction, Nietzsche is a great person to think with because almost everything he writes calls on us to take certain kinds of risks. And even though he sometimes expresses it in this over-the-top fashion, it it can be very inspiring and can at least cause us to think about, you know, maybe taking a few more careful chances, I guess I would put it, in the service of having more experience and not putting safety at the absolute top. Right. So there's a balance to be struck then between risk-taking and living life in the world as it exists. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever seen these mountain climbing movies, right? They always make you think of these kind of things like that movie Free Solo, where this climber scales Half Dome in Yosemite without a rope. I mean, even the people filming him in this attempt in the movie cannot watch it. They have to look away from their own cameras because, you know, one slip and this guy is dead. Is that the kind of risk we need to be taking? Not necessarily. I, I, I think that's kind of crazy. But for this guy, it was it was amazingly life-giving. And he talks about that in the film. I think Nietzsche just asks us to think about that in relation to a life well-lived and the potential payoffs of taking even minor to moderate risk. I mean, you don't you don't have to climb Half Dome without a rope, but there's all sorts of ways in which we're living, or at least I'm living, and I suspect many people are too, because I've seen the dissatisfaction people are expressing that feel too constrained. And Nietzsche can be really someone who who calls you to kind of break through and break free from some of that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that, like you've expressed, living dangerously, it sounds like that can look different from individual to individual. But I think you would be, I think a lot of contemporary American people would relate to that dissatisfaction with the level of comfort and stability in their lives. And of course, like you said, that's not true for everybody, but just having something to to force us to confront that and ask ourselves whether we're satisfied with that, I think is very helpful. Yeah, I think it's one of those perpetual questions that's worth revisiting as we apply it to our own lives, maybe even once a year or so, but just to think about. And if you want to recalibrate then based on your answer to that question, I think Nietzsche's big insight was just that these things that technology promises us are not necessarily the highest human ends. And if that if that's resonating for you, then I think it's worth thinking about the way technology maybe can be used to serve other kinds of ends. I mean, technology does these things for us, but it can be put to all sorts of interesting and creative uses. Yeah, technology itself doesn't force these things on us. Yeah, I think that's that's a really helpful point as well. Uh, technology doesn't have to be used to serve only the ends of entertainment and comfort. It can be used creatively and fruitfully in all sorts of ways. Yeah, although I think if you go with the flow of what, uh, especially the biggest technology companies, the way they design their products, you are pushed in a direction of 
ease, comfort, entertainment, because the goal is usually to capture your attention. But tech doesn't have to be that way. And the key point, I think, is for us to come back to this idea of being goal-oriented, teleological, even in the way we're using our technology, that will help us from just sort of going along with the default flow of these tech products, of doing what the companies behind them sometimes want, and hopefully using them to more creative and productive and fulfilling ends. Yeah, that's really helpful as well. All right. So one final question. If a university student like myself was interested in exploring the work of Nietzsche further, how would you recommend they go about doing that? Yeah, Nietzsche's books are, trying to think the most charitable way of saying this, they can be kind of crazy. He's all over the place. And he writes some of his most interesting work that I would say is maybe a good place to start, but close to when he goes insane. And you can, I think you can feel it coming through. Some of it starts to feel a little over the top or unhinged. For all these reasons, plus Nietzsche does say some things that are objectionable to modern ears. I, I think the best way in is to really understand him and his context first. And so reading a book like mine, or there's a book called Hiking with Nietzsche by the philosopher John Kagg, in which he talks about how Nietzsche has influenced his life and how he recreates two hikes through areas that Nietzsche himself walked in repeatedly at different points in his life. Or reading a good biography of Nietzsche are probably the best ways to start because you'll get Nietzsche's ideas, you'll get his philosophy, you'll understand his biography, and you'll understand the context of some of these statements he makes that often sound a lot less objectionable when you understand what he means. All right. Very good. Well, that's all we have for you today. Nate Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And once again, for the audience, the book is In Emergency Break Glass, What Nietzsche Can Teach Us About Joyful Living in a Tech-Saturated World. Thank you again, Nate. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.